Yoshi, I don't want to be dramatic about it, but it feels a little bit like the end of the world at the moment. Your office is being hammered by the wind that we can hear in the background, and the trams are down. Yeah, for those listeners who don't realise, we've just spent 20 minutes trying to work out what the various background noises on our <laughs> on our track are. And the worst one is that we're in the Royal Exchange building. It's a very old building, and there is a storm just absolutely battering our old single-pane windows. Uh, so if, that, if you can hear anything, dear listeners, <laughs> it's that. And last night when I, was at, when I was at Old Trafford, they announced sort of halfway through the game that there were going to be no... Metro link to Trafford Centre. Then, by the time I got back to the tram stop, it was no Metro link to anywhere, and I think various tram lines have been down for for the past couple of days, suspended. So um, it's been quite a week. And I know it's not the biggest deal in the world, but I couldn't get a tram to Media City today. I had to walk for a bus, and I've got very pinchy shoes on today. Which I know it doesn't feel like the end of the world, does it? But would somebody think of my feet, please? This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris and Yoshi Herman is the editor of The Mill, the quality newspaper for Manchester delivered by email. And Yoshi, as well as those sweeping winds and not being able to get very far on the tram, a heck of a lot of news around in Greater Manchester this week. Yeah, we've got a really interesting story about Manchester Pride and changes that they say they're going to make to their programme after fierce criticism last year. And a really kind of iconic slash much loved slash much hated uh, music venue um, nightclub um, on, on Princess Street that's closing down I was going to start batting there for that nightclub but I don't think I can actually with all sincerity uh, we'll find out why in a minute we've also got a cracker of a story that was in the mill this week historian Thomas McGrath has been studying some paintings at the Manchester Art Gallery in the centre of town and what they tell us about the society at that time, Yoshi. Yeah, he's uh, Dr. Thomas McGrath to you, Darren. Oh, and, forgive me, forgive me. <laughs> no, Sorry, he's, Doctor. <laughs> he's, our, he's our resident in-house um, historian. And this is a, a really lovely story that sort of takes in art, social history, legal history, and, you know, a bit of writing from Wigan, which is actually where Thomas works for the archives there. So it's a really fascinating piece. Okay, we'll speak to Thomas shortly. Firstly, let's get into this week's briefing then, shall we, Yoshi? And we'll start, as you say, with some really significant news from Manchester Pride. We've all been watching, haven't we, for the last couple of years as pride has changed and has had lots of criticism along the way last year in particular it was heavily criticized for the event itself but also the revelation that manchester pride's charitable donations weren't quite to everybody's liking shall we say some question marks over the money raised and where that money went to there's been a big report today hasn't there yoshi but we're going to hear shortly from two really significant people in the lgbt community in manchester firstly yoshi just give us some context if you've missed this story what exactly are we talking about well pride faced a lot of criticism last year as you said for kind of straying from its activist roots not giving enough money to the charities that people think it should be supporting and therefore they've done this six-month consultation and they've come up with these proposals for how they want pride to be different basically in response to the criticism they're going to scrap their high profile um, music festival aspect called live they're going to focus all the activities around the gay village party and you know the events chair says and i quote we've listened to the community's comments and we will address their recommendations to refocus efforts back towards activism some significant changes these and obviously as you say Yoshi in direct response to the criticism in the last couple of years let's hear from uh, Carl Austin Bear now who is an LGBT advisor to the mayor of Greater Manchester you'll also remember Carl was the first gay Lord Mayor of Manchester these were his reflections 
I'm really glad that Manchester Pride have published this report. I don't think it tells us anything that we didn't know, and I think the fact of making it 66 pages with different charts, percentages, talking about other initiatives, training, education, is quite confusing. The good thing is the first part is very clear what needs to happen. It needs to go back to its roots. It needs to be about the village. It needs to be about the charities, and it needs to be the, about the community. And I think as long as we get that right, then it's a, it's a good starting block. I mean, I'm a little bit surprised that it does say about the, the fact that there'll be no Manchester Live for 2022, because it doesn't actually say that it's been cancelled altogether. It just says not for this year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in years to come. Carl Austin Bent with us on the Manchester Weekly. Let's hear from Emma Goswell as well, who is a journalist and a broadcaster based in Manchester. She hosts the Coming Out Stories podcast and uh, is a bit of a Pride grandee, has been uh, with Pride for many, many years. Emma, hi. Thank you for giving us your insight on this. Really appreciate it. Can we start with this last sort of 12 months and, and last year's events? What was your take on last year? It all went horribly wrong for Manchester Pride, didn't it, since August 2021. Let's just say that the feeling amongst the LGBT community in Manchester was not great. As soon as they announced the amount of money that they hadn't raised for LGBT charities for giving out condoms and supporting the George Childs Trust, which, let's not forget, is the reason Manchester Pride set up, there was an absolute outcry. Um, to the extent that a 1,000 people marched through the streets of Manchester saying, Manchester Pride does not represent us, they need to sort themselves out, I won't be supporting Pride in the future. It all went horribly, horribly wrong. And to have this announcement this week is a massive turnaround, I have to say. And fair play to them that they have spent six months listening finally to opinion and to all of those people that were very, very angry about what Manchester Pride had become and they seem to have put their money where their mouths are. You hosted uh, an event at a fringe to Manchester Pride, didn't you? Pride Fringe last year, Emma, as part of your Coming Out Stories strand. Was that a conscious decision for you to sort of, you know, wanting to be a part of Pride but not necessarily wanting to be right in the heart of it? Yeah, I think so. And also it was certainly more COVID secure because there were not 10 million people walking through the streets. But that's that's another discussion to be had. I felt that I didn't necessarily want to support the whole music side of Manchester Pride anymore, actually, because <sighs> Manchester Pride should be a protest and it should be about activism. And actually, the fact that it's just become a music concert, which is not even in the village anymore, it's totally separate from it, was not necessarily what I wanted to be a part of. I'd support everyone else's right to want to go and do that and be a part of it. But, you know, honestly, if I want to go to an Ariana Grande concert, if I want to go to a Years and Years concert, I'll put my hand in my pocket and I'll go and pay those artists. I don't want that to be muddled in terms of what Pride is, really. So I was quite happy doing my Fringe event, selling a few books, talking about LGBT stories and then going to Sackville Gardens and watching a couple of drag queens. That was more than enough for me. I didn't need the whole music event. So actually, I am gobsmacked but really pleased that they've decided to ditch that whole side of it this year. Remarkable. You say that protest is an important part of Pride, central to Pride, and it is, I mean, it's the origin of Pride, isn't it? Not just Manchester Pride, but Pride in general as a concept. Why is that still important for Manchester Pride in 2022? Exactly. Well, we always remember our LGBT history, which is good. We're talking about this in LGBT History Month. The first 
pride, the big prides that started in America started around the anniversary of Stonewall. The first pride, they always say, was a riot. Let's not forget. And the whole reason that we started the movement was because LGBT people were being persecuted by lawmakers, by the general public, facing absolute atrocities. But that's not to say, just because we've got, you know, now we've got equal age of consent, now we've got equal marriage, that is not to say that it is easy to be an LGBT person still in 2022. There are still young people being thrown out their homes because of their gender identity or their sexuality. That happens. That's why we need charities like the Albert Kennedy Trust. And there are still people getting abused and bullied at schools, in the workplace, for their sexuality. It still goes on. And one thing that I was pleased to see that Manchester Pride were going to be doing as well is actually they're going to be focusing on their activism and they want to focus this year on hate crimes. There's still a terrible amount of hate crimes against our community and people are still getting, and I hate to use this term, but it is a term, queer bashed and beaten up in the streets of Manchester for their sexuality. And it's still happening. So we need that activism and we need that protest to let people know what is going on. Generally speaking, Emma, a positive response to these changes, a positive response to Pride's response to the criticism in the last couple of years. In this report that we're talking about this week, I do just want to get your take on the makeup of the people who have contributed to this report, because this is a really important part of this story, I think. When you look at the data that Manchester Pride have have opened up, this report is, as we've been hearing from Carl earlier, and from Yoshi, pages and pages and pages long in terms of their working out. 66 pages, yes. I've not read all of them, I have to admit. It's an enormous, big sort of canvas of opinion. And then when you look at the data of the people that they have canvassed for that opinion, the stats line up as 60% of those people responding identify as male, 93% white, 84% were in what was described as the ABC1 category. What are we to take here, Emma, from this data and the majority of people who have shaped this report being white gay people who identify as men? That's really sad, isn't it? And that's a real indication of problems, not just within this report, within wider society and the fact that still, I think black and Asian people might feel that they can't go into bars in the gay village. Disabled people, people with mental health problems, people with learning difficulties. A lot of people, people who are a bit older maybe, people from working class backgrounds feel that they are not welcome in the village or or feel part of society and they're minorities within a minority. And I think that's really sad looking at those stats that we haven't got the full gamut of the LGBT community, which was a broad, broad rainbow of you know different types of people so it's a shame it's a shame but I I know that they did try to get lots of different responses of people but it's a shame that people don't feel emboldened do they to actually respond to these sorts of reviews that don't feel part of it which is really really sad big strides but work to be done I think is where we're at well, work to be done, yeah, and there's a lot of waffle in the report as well. For example, they've actually, the most important thing is about how much money they give to charity, and all they've said about that is we will commit a fixed amount or a percentage of each ticket purchased to Pride events. But what does that mean? What is the percentage or is it a fixed amount? We still don't actually know. So part of me thinks it's great and it's wonderful that they've listened, but we need a bit more meat on the bones, I think, because it's all about that money that goes to LGBT charities. And unless they fix that, I don't think they'll have everyone's support. OK, really valuable insight. Emma Goswell, thank you. 
Okay, Yoshi. Also, we've been talking a lot recently, haven't we, about housing in Manchester and the disparities to other parts of the country and people wanting to move to Manchester, a really popular post-pandemic destination, it seems, for people looking for a slightly different life. This week, Yoshi, there's been some interesting developments on the ramifications of that, particularly to rental prices and homelessness. This was a big piece in the MEN under the headline Has Manchester Rebuilt London's Housing Crisis? It reports on the plight faced by the, the growing number of homeless families in Manchester and it kind of asks whether this situation is now sort of becoming out of control. To give you some context here, Housing benefit across the country has largely been frozen in recent years. The local housing allowance has largely been frozen. Rents have obviously been going up in lots of places in the country, but, you know, Great Manchester has, as you just said, become a really popular destination for people to come. So rents have been going up, and therefore people are losing their homes and needing to need the council to help them out with a temporary accommodation with with homelessness support etc etc there's now no ward in the city where the average rents can be covered by this local housing allowance so that obviously makes it more and more difficult if you're on housing benefit to find a place to rent and it's kind of a cocktail of things that are happening at the same time that mean that you have got an increased number of people who are in emergency accommodation, who are in this temporary sort of accommodation. The MEN reports that Manchester now has the highest rate of people in emergency accommodation outside of London, except for Luton. So we've been looking at the numbers on this, and I think it's going to be a really interesting one to follow. On the face of it, I think a lot of people would say, Manchester's housing market looks nothing like London, you know. The ratio of the average property price to earnings, you know, is like 5.9 in in Manchester. That's up from, I think, 4.7 10 years ago, which is, you know, a bit of an increase, but not an enormous increase. It's nowhere near the kind of numbers you see in London where you have 15 to 1, 20 to 1, 25 to 1. I think it's 20 in Camden, for example, 36 in Kensington or whatever. So we don't have the kind of unaffordability on buying homes. I think what this MEN report is identifying is right at the bottom of the market there are families who are getting evicted from their private rentals because they can no longer afford the rent you know at the at the sort of cheaper end of the market i think it's going to be really interesting to look at whether the numbers bear out this broad hypothesis or this broad question about whether manchester has rebuilt london's housing crisis i'm a little bit skeptical that that's exactly the right framing or it's maybe not the framing that we would choose here at the mill for example there are you know about 13,000 mancunians on the social housing waiting list at the moment you know that's slightly less than than we had in in 2011 10 years ago that doesn't mean that it's not still a high number but when you look at the percentage of of, of residents in greater manchester who are on the social housing waiting list i think it's you know 2.3 percent in manchester which is pretty much exactly what it is across the country so i'm slightly skeptical that we have a a housing crisis that is much more serious than comparable cities than than comparable national averages but clearly the number of people in temporary accommodation is incredibly high and that's something we're going to be looking at in 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 the weeks ahead we're actually working with some uh, graduate data students um, data science students from the university of manchester who are doing a project with the mill and um, i'm meeting them this week and, and we're going to be talking about some of these numbers so hopefully we can bring you a little bit more depth on this um, in in the weeks and, and months ahead 
great. We'll, we'll look forward to uh, to diving into that for sure. And elsewhere this week, Yoshi, a rest in peace, a fallen king, an iconic, and I, I use that word advisedly, uh, an iconic Manchester music venue is closing its doors. Yeah, Fifth Avenue, which has more recently been known as Fifth, I believe, on Princess Street. It's a nightclub that I think every student in Manchester has been to. It surrendered its licence last year. It hasn't been open for quite a while because of the pandemic. It won't be reopening. There were some people, I think, mourning this, but when I asked my young staff members who've been to this particular place what it was like, one of them said, it's the worst place ever. And the other <laughs> the other one said, it's just awful. So, you know, there are no tears in Mill HQ for this particular nightclub, but um, apparently on Twitter, the people uh, feel differently. I think it's one of those places, and, and, and we've talked about this before, about restaurants or sort of these, you know, particularly hospitality venues, but places that close down and you feel a sense of sadness, but you would never in a million years go there yourself. And you think, well, I just don't know why I'm surprised that the place is closing down. That's, I think, how a lot of people feel about Fifth. It's an iconic part of Manchester's cultural scene, but not one that you would dabble in, necessarily, unless you were, I don't know, perhaps of a certain student. That's a really big student destination. And perhaps when I was younger in my early 20s, I would have maybe gone there a couple of times. I'm just thinking sticky dance floors, proper sticky dance floors, Mr. Brightside, the lights coming up, the horror of, you know, makeup all over the place, sweat pouring out of you. Um. That sounds absolutely horrific, Dan. And um, I'm I'm glad it's gone. I'm glad it's closed. (laughs) Uh, Yoshi, whilst we're on the issue of hospitality in Manchester, a development on a story we talked about last week and a story that you've run in the mill around Simon Martin and there's been some new developments on this, hasn't there, Yoshi? Yeah, the story that we did about Simon Martin and Manor has now been followed in the Daily Mail, it's been followed in the Daily Telegraph and in the Times. And I thought the interesting thing about the Times story was they kind of added to our reporting because Simon Martin has said in the past, I think including to the Manchester Evening News, that he's enjoyed working with Gordon Ramsay. He's learned from his stint working at Gordon Ramsay. And what the Times revealed is there is no knowledge of him working at Gordon Ramsay, at least from the source they spoke to. They got hold of someone at Ramsay's company who said there is no record of Simon Martin working at restaurant Gordon Ramsay. For sure, yeah. And an interesting development. You can read the original story, manchestermill.co.uk. That's where you need to go to subscribe to read that and everything else you need to know in Greater Manchester. Uh, Yoshi, for now, thank you. We've long fought for our image, haven't we, in the North? We're self-aware enough to be self-depreciating, but don't underestimate us. And definitely don't sneer at us. Historian Thomas McGrath has been looking at how working-class communities lived and often were judged, especially women, through a piece of 19th century art sat in a Manchester art gallery. Thomas joins us on the Manchester Weekly Now. Hello, Thomas. You've written in the mill this week about a painting that, if you've been to the art gallery in Manchester, might be familiar to you. The Dinner Hour, Wigan. Paint the picture of the picture, Thomas. So the picture was painted in 1874 by an artist called Er Crow, who was from a family of journalists. And what he liked to do in his paintings was paint scenes that were realistic to contemporary life in the 1870s. And he visited a mill, and he also visited a colliery and painted the pit brow lasses. And then he went and exhibited these pictures at the Royal Academy amongst, you know, lots of nice scenes of probably landscapes and florals and wealthy people. And smack bang in the middle are these working class women from the north of England. 
I've got it up here. It's a nice painting. And it's kind of familiar. It's familiar of its era, I guess. You know, one of the things that I found really interesting, though, about this was it was how it was received at the time. Yes. So he faced a lot of criticism. His artwork was quite heavily criticised, really. He was told that he'd painted uninteresting subjects. He was also told in one review that he'd wasted his time. So he couldn't really make anyone happy. And I think, to be honest, he's, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. So he knows that he needs to create a painting that is going to be visually appealing enough to be exhibited. And then on the other hand, he knows that he still wants to put an element of real life in this painting. So he can't make it too grim and he can't make it too pretty. And I mean, does that, does that leave it as an unfair reflection of the time, Thomas, do you think? I think so, because he's he's essentially stuck with having to create something that falls into both camps. So he kind of falls down the middle. This isn't a reflection on him as an artist in any way, shape or form. He is an excellent artist and he produced wonderful paintings throughout his career. Um, But he just couldn't make everybody happy with this particular painting. Okay, and I think the really key bit here is the way in which the subjects were described, right? Those critical reviews centering around the fact that the subjects weren't particularly great to look at. What does that tell us, Thomas, about attitudes at the time? People didn't want to see scenes of everyday life that were uncomfortable to see. They didn't want to see what was going on elsewhere in parts of the country. They didn't want to necessarily stir poverty in the face. But at the same time, they kind of can't get enough of it. They enjoy the fact that perhaps it gives them a sense of comfort and pride. Perhaps it's a sense of moral superiority if they feel like they can do charitable works to help these people. They want to see it and they don't want to see it, which is why in the article I said, you know, they're essentially peeking through their fingers. They know that this exists. They know that it's out there. And when it's hung on a wall in front of them, they don't want to see that because that's that that's in their spaces that's in their social spaces they can close their front doors and hide away from the slums but when it's a piece of art and it's in places that they like to go to it's more obvious around that time there was a fair bit of photographing or painting workers particularly female workers right and i guess in part thomas for that reason that you outlined there i think you describe it in the article as the fetishization of the working classes absolutely so scenes of working class life essentially have been popular in art since the 17th century you get scenes with maid servants in domestic homes you get rural workers out you know collecting hay in fields. And then by the mid-19th century, you start to get scenes of the industrial urban poor. So this is what Crow is doing in The Dinner Hour. And we see it with Ford Maddox Brown's scene entitled Work, which also hangs in Manchester Art Gallery as well, where the urban poor are shown alongside the middle class and the wealthy as they go about their daily lives. And as you mentioned, we get these photographs as well, where people like Arthur Mumby who was a solicitor, but he had this... Fetish is a good word, but it's also perhaps not the right word to describe how he viewed these women, because he was very interested in social reform and highlighting the working conditions of women who worked in collieries in particular. So he would come to Wigan in the 1860s, 1870s, and he would interview the women about their lives. He would stand next to them in photographs to show how tall they were and how like broad they were from their heavy work that had built muscles. But at the same time, he did derive a lot of pleasure from the fact that they were not looking 
like other women. They weren't wearing dresses. They were wearing trousers to work, these colliery girls. And he also had this illicit secret affair with a maid who he eventually married. But then she carried on being a domestic servant. So there's a weird sexual power dynamic with Arthur Mumby as well. There's a lot going on there, isn't there, for sure. That power dynamic is a really important point as well, isn't it? And, and actually, I think in Crow's work in uh, The Dinner Hour, there is a real disparity between the way that he, the way that his, the, the female workers were depicted and what, what you presumably they would have been. I mean, you describe them as being full of health and vitality, whereas actually they would have been weary and probably hungry and tired and uh, much more dishevelled than, than they appear. There is an element here, perhaps, of, I mean, it was criticised for you know, for depicting people at their worst and, and that, that being an unpleasant thing that people didn't want to, the middle classes, the middle and the upper classes didn't want to have to look at. But actually, there is also a filtering, perhaps, of the reality of what it was to be a working woman in that era. Absolutely, yeah. This, uh, this painting is very much a sanitised view of these women. They would have been a lot more dishevelled, bedraggled when they came out of that mill. And that is something that he heavily edited in his picture. He knew that this was going to be exhibited and that definitely would have made it an unappealing picture to go and view. So he essentially paints what he wants to paint and paints them looking healthy and full of life and cheerful and happy, which no doubt some of them were. But the majority of them by that dinner hour would have been exhausted and starving. When you were looking through these paintings and these pictures, Thomas, what did you learn of the people and their stories? So the paintings can only show you so much and they are a springboard into this further research about what life was actually like for the subjects of these paintings. Tell me about Catherine Donnelly, if you can, who I believe was a 19-year-old mill worker who came up in your research. Yeah, so I came across Catherine's story when I was looking for the effects of the cotton famine on women in particular. So the cotton famine was a result of the American Civil War in the 1860s and cotton produce was not coming from the southern states of America because of the war and it had this knock-on effect in the mills of Lancashire in particular and places like Wigan, as mentioned, were really hard hit. What happened was the mills closed and they turned their workers out. Some of them were able to claim poor relief from the local council in Wigan but the majority of them were left to their own devices and Catherine Donnelly was one such person. She didn't appear to have any relatives or family in Wigan at that time. We know that she was Irish. We know that she was Irish born so she'd likely come over in the years before 1860 and basically one day she had to go begging for money or for food or for anything that she could get because she was she'd completely run out of both. She was she was at her wit's end. So she walks a few miles outside of Wigan to the neighbouring sort of hamlets and villages. And when she gets to one village in particular, some men take advantage of her and her situation. They forcibly drag her into a pub and then into a room in the pub. When they're in there, an argument breaks out. One of the men hits her across her face with a glass and we know that from the newspaper accounts that she has even when she's in court weeks later she has a huge gash along her temple and her eye and then one or more of the men then sexually assault Catherine she is able to get out of the room and flee the pub but she doesn't go to the police initially because she fears that she will get in trouble because as a working class woman she could end up imprisoned herself for begging 
so she's reluctant to go to the police. But what happens is some of the men who were accused of this crime start to brag about what they've done. A police officer overhears these conversations and he goes to find Catherine and encourages her to go to court. The case makes it to the local courts in Wigan, to the quarter sessions, where some of the men are acquitted of their crime. One man in particular, it goes all the way to Liverpool Assizes Court, but there he's acquitted as well. Blimey, goodness me. It's an awful story and probably one that was so common as well. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure, sure it was. There's a comment on your article from an Elaine Burroughs, a reader of The Mill, who says, A similar attitude to working class people, and not just women, is still prevalent amongst the middle classes. It's called poverty porn, she says, and it's a modern day version that was captured in the notorious Channel 4 programme Benefit Street. There have been other documentaries and dramas of a similar ilk. I wonder, Thomas, if that sort of loops us back around to where we began here, this depiction of the women outside the mill and a lot of artwork in that era depicting people, working class people, um, criticised by the art critics but secretly enjoyed by the middle classes and the upper classes during that period as um, what would now be described, as Eileen does, as poverty porn. Yeah, absolutely. It seems that we've never really shied away from what our Victorian forebearers thought in that sense. It's an interesting one. I think poverty porn is a really good way of describing it. That's a really good phrase. I suppose it depends on the motivations for producing that piece of art or that television programme or that study survey, whatever it may be. You know, Crow attempted to do this in a a way that was sort of sympathetic to the plight of the working class women. But when we see those documentaries and and programmes like Benefits Britain and things like that, perhaps there is an element of sympathy with the people depicted on it. But at the same time, surely these producers know that this is going to open up a whole can of worms and the people are going to be ridiculed, especially in our social media age today online where anyone can say anything very quickly that they want to say. I think as well it's not just even a sort of middle class looking down on the working classes either sort of contemporary or historically. In the 19th century there was the notion of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor and that was something that was upheld by the working classes themselves so the deserving poor were people who through no fault of their own had fallen on hard times the undeserving poor were people who were vagrants who were prostitutes who were criminals and they were the people that didn't deserve any help so even within the working class community themselves historically there was sort of a a fraction between those who were slightly higher up, looking down on those who were beneath them. There's there's always got to be an underdog to society. And, you know, that's something that's true of society 150 years ago and of today. Fascinating. Lots of things change, don't they, Thomas? Some things don't. Point to the direction, if you can. If, if, if people want to see for themselves these pictures, the dinner hour in particular in Wigan, I think is a really, really, really vivid picture. And you describe such a fascinating story attached to it. Where are they? So they're in the art gallery on Mosley Street, Manchester Art Gallery, and they are free to view, and I definitely would recommend going and seeing them. You get so much more of a sense of the picture when you can see it up close, and you can look for the details and interpret it in your own way when you really get to stand and study the canvas. Work by Ford Maddox Brown is also in the art gallery as well. Brilliant. Thank you, Thomas. Really nice to talk to you. 
Okay, Yoshi, uh, let's have a look at what's coming up in Greater Manchester in the next week or so. What's on your horizon, my friend? What should we be doing? Well, Phil Griffin, who's one of our uh, writers and a long-time member of the mill, he's got an exhibition of a printmaker called Sam Lyon Spice. It starts Friday night at 6pm. It's 45 Hilton Street is the the gallery in the Northern Quarter. And Phil often has, you know, interesting printmakers and painters and and, and drafters and and drawers and all sorts on in, in his gallery. So I think that'd be well worth a go. Excellent. Uh, my nod for the week is Blood Brothers on at the Palace Theatre in Manchester at the moment. It's got another week or so up until the 26th of February, I think. So uh, worth getting in while you can. It's a cracking production of it as well. It's been on tour for a while, this one, and doing very, very well, getting really good reviews. I studied this actually when I was at school, and there, there are very few things, I think, that you study that you carry on enjoying into your adult life. It usually tars them, doesn't it, forever, having studied them. But I studied and still enjoy. Willie Russell's Blood Brothers because it's a proper proper classic uh, proper northern classic as well on at the Palace Theatre until the 26th that's it from us for this week for now Yoshi thank you thank you to Thomas as well and thank you to the the real star of this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly Podcast which was the wind outside Yoshi's window shout out to the wind Uh, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts hit like as well you'll get a brand new episode of the Manchester Weekly in your podcast feed every single week and there's more stories deep dives into fascinating parts of the city and pointers for events that you have to be at. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you subscribe. 